0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to wrap up Luke 7 this Sunday. If I use the phrase directly proportional, does that make any sense? It's a math term, but applied to a lot of other things. Uh, Directly proportional. This is the definition I got off the internet. Um, as uh, as one amount increases or decreases the other amount increases or decreases at the same rate if that makes sense here's an illustration so if you get paid by the hour, the more hours you work the larger your paycheck is the more money you get paid right so it's directly proportional you you might say something like um, My ability to pay attention on Sunday mornings is directly proportional to how much coffee I had before I came. You know, we might say something like that. Or there's other ways that you might uh, talk about something being directly proportional. Uh, I I bring that up because I think in part of what Jesus is going to teach us this morning is that our love for him is directly proportional to our understanding of who he is and of how much we have been forgiven. This is Jesus' main point. Let me give it to you in his words. That's my words, but his words are, Those who are forgiven much, love much. That's the main point of what this whole passage is about. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. If you want to say it in terms of directly proportional, you would say, our love for Jesus is directly proportional to our understanding of who he is and of how much we have been forgiven. And so that makes sense then that we should should always be seeking to understand who Christ is and who we are apart from him. We should seek to know our sin because though the more we grow in our knowledge of Christ, the more we know who he is, and the more we understand our sin, then the more we will love Christ. If our love for Christ is low. Maybe you come in here this morning and you just you just feel that. You feel, you know what? My my love for Christ, my worship of God in this moment, it just I don't feel it there. Let me tell you how to increase that. It's directly proportional to your understanding of who Christ is. Even in this moment, you might know who He is, but you've just sort of forgotten or it's faded to the back of your mind that, that we would be remember what kind of a Savior He is and we remember how much we have been saved from. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Let's jump right in here in Luke 7 and read this wonderful story, beginning in verse 36, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Luke seven thirty-six. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One, owned five, one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a wonderful story. So many details that are in here that I hope we can see and and think on this morning. Uh, As he normally does, Luke sort of opens this account by by giving us the the characters in the story. He sort of sets the scene, and and verse 36 tells us that one of the Pharisees, and we later learned that this guy's name is Simon, had invited Jesus over to have a meal. Um, This may have been a Sabbath meal. It may have been some sort of a banquet, but it it seems to be a a more extravagant gathering because these guests, you see them reclining at the table. Now this isn't you laying on your couch, eating barbecue chips and watching the game. This is, this is more of like a, a formal banquet of sorts. They would have laid on couches and propped themselves up on their, on their elbows with their feet away from the table. Um, it sounds kind of uncomfortable to me, to be honest, but this is, it, it's a leisurely way to gather and, and to, to feast. You might imagine them even eating outside in Simon's courtyard, which would have been a beautiful place. It it just has all the marks of sort of a a sophisticated gathering, a a fancy meal. So the first two characters, Jesus and the Pharisee, introduced. And then in verse 37, we meet the third character, and it's, it's a woman. The third character is this woman who's introduced. And Luke identifies her here as she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Her name isn't given, but she was well known. Everyone in the city knew who she was. And, in fact, that phrase there, a woman of the city who was a sinner, may actually, some say, it be a polite way of saying that she was a prostitute. But we don't know for sure, but whatever it was, this woman's moral sin was something that everyone in the town knew about. That's what she was marked as. Isn't that interesting? This is She has no name. She is the woman who was a sinner. How would you like to be known for that? Whatever the point is, the, the idea is here is that, that she is notorious in her city for her rebellion against God, against God's law. And it says here that this woman heard that Jesus was at Simon's house. And so she goes to see Jesus. She goes looking for Jesus, and she goes to Simon's house. Now, this might seem strange to us. If you're having a meal, people will just come in off the street uh, and and come to your table. But this was, a again, maybe in a courtyard, and this was something, it was it was sort of a spectacle. That all these people reclining on their couches eating, and people would come and they would they would watch. And so, this the spectators were in fact welcome. At least most spectators were welcome. This woman was probably not someone that they wanted to particularly welcome to be at this meal. But she comes. She's heard about Jesus. Maybe she's heard about his actions. But there's something in it, in here that indicates that it seems like she knew who Jesus was prior to this that she wasn't coming to meet him for the first time, but rather her heart was was overflowing with love and gratitude to Jesus, and she heard that he was at Simon's house, and she said, I need to go there and express my love and my gratitude for Christ. And so she comes, she shows up, and with this determination, she arrives at Simon's house. She doesn't stay on the outskirts or in the shadows, but she she approaches Jesus. It says that she comes... She's standing behind him at his feet. She comes, and as she comes, she's, she's overwhelmed with, with emotion, and she begins to weep. She stands there, and she's she's weeping. And she's weeping so much, it says, that her tears begin to fall from her face and to land on Jesus' feet. Jesus' feet that had not been washed, we'll see that later, which would have been caked with, with the dust of the city. And, and as her tears fall on Jesus' feet, she has nothing to, to wipe his feet with. And so she undoes her, her hair, which would have been up. And this was scandalous that anyone would do this in public. No Jewish woman in her right mind would undo her hair in public. And she undoes her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet that, is, that are now wet with her own tears, begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And she kneels behind him, weeping, tears falling on his feet, wiping his feet with her hair and kissing his feet. This all seems, in fact, spontaneous. That she's overwhelmed with emotion for some reason. What is it? Is it it that she is coming in repentance, that she sees her sin and she's overwhelmed at her sin? Or is it that she's overwhelmed with, with love and gratitude to Christ? I think we might say it's a mixture of both. She understands both of those things. She sees her sin, she sees her Savior, and she is just she cannot hold in the emotion anymore, and it just overflows out. And, but but the reason that she had come is that she had brought this, it says in verse thirty seven, she brought an alabaster flask of, of ointment, of perfume, a, a bottle of perfume that she had with her. And she comes to Jesus. And this was why she had come. She she had come to anoint Jesus, and she's there at his feet, and she anoints the feet of Jesus with this perfume that she had brought with her. You might imagine that, that smell sort of feel, filling the, the room where they're at. It's a beautiful smell. It was a beautiful smell to everyone except for Simon and his guests. It stunk to them. You know, it's quite the scene, isn't it? I mean, Luke paints this whole scene. There's no dialogue at all um, in this first part. It it might be a little confusing. It's a little uncomfortable maybe to you. When I read it, I I feel a little bit uncomfortable. If I'm in Jesus' place, I think I might pull my feet away. I'm not sure that I like what's going on here. And in one sense, that's true. It is scandalous. Daryl Bach, who's a commentator, he says, everything about her action is offensive. Everything about her action is offensive. Just the mere fact that she was there was offensive. She's this notorious sinner in the town, and she shows up. That's offensive to everyone there. The letting down of her hair is totally offensive. Taking center stage at this, everyone is obviously looking at her at this point, right? That is offensive. She's she's taken over the room. But Jesus doesn't stand and scold this woman, does he? He, stand, he's, he, he continues to recline at the couch and allows her to do what she has come to do. He doesn't pull away from her. Uh, that's what Simon thought Jesus should have done. That's what he wanted Jesus to do. And verse 40 reveals to us what, what Simon is thinking. It's not what he says out loud, but what is, what, is, what is in his mind because he is fuming inside. He is taking in this whole scene. It's happening where? In his house, under his roof. And he hates it. His thoughts are, he's disgusted with the woman, but, but what he's more upset about is Jesus and what Jesus is doing. He says, this is, this is Jesus who's supposed to be the great rabbi. This is Jesus who some people are saying is the Messiah. And as Simon considers what's going on here, he makes two conclusions. You see this, what he says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. So he makes a couple conclusions. First, This guy is not a prophet. He is not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, the second thing is, he would know who this woman is. So, he's not a prophet, and he doesn't know who this woman is. That's what Simon's thinking at this moment. Of course, Simon is dead wrong, isn't he? He is a prophet. He is the greatest prophet. And he knows exactly who this woman is. He knows everything about her. He knows her better than she knows herself. He knows her better than Simon knows her, or Simon knows himself. Jesus is a prophet. And what's interesting here is Jesus proves that he knows who this woman is, not by standing up and rebuking her and saying, I know who you are. But what does he do? He looks to Simon and says, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Just make sure you note this. It says that in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is not out loud, this is in Simon's mind. And then I love the way that it says it here in verse 40. And Jesus, answering, said to him. Simon's thinking, did I say that out loud? I don't think I said that out loud. I just thought I thought that. And and Jesus answers him. And so Jesus shows, I am a prophet, and I know who this woman is, and I know exactly what you're thinking, Simon. And let me ask you something. He says, I love this phrase. I don't know why. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and Simon says... Probably startled at this point. Say it, Lord. And then Jesus tells a very simple story. It's a story about two men. Two men who owed the same man some money. And one of them owed 500 denarii, which would have been about a year and a half's wages. A significant chunk of money. A denarii was about a day's wages, so a little bit over a year and a half's wages. The other person owes 50 denarii, so maybe about, you know, I think about two months' salary. Is what he was. So these are both significant debts. But one is significantly larger than the other one. And in this story, the man who is owed the money forgives both of the debts. And then Jesus asks a question. He says, which one will love the man who forgave those debts more? The one who owed 500 denarii or the one who owed 50? Simple question, right? I mean, the answer is obvious. We can go to McDonald's, we could go to Starbucks next door, and we could tell this story, and we could ask the exact same question, and unless someone was just kind of being obnoxious, then they would all give the same answer. And that's what Simon says, isn't it? But he, he kind of says it in a unique way. He says in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. There's sort of a reluctance to admit what Jesus is, is getting at here, and Jesus says to him, bingo, that's right. You have judged correctly, Simon. You answered the question right. And then comes the application. But isn't this interesting? Before the application, verse 44, then it says, Jesus, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. He's going to talk to Simon, but what does he do? He turns and looks at the woman. Interesting. And what's the question that he asks? Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman, Simon? And we're all thinking, of course. Of course we see this. Of course he saw this woman. He's totally offended by this woman. Doesn't that question seem a little bit deeper, though, that Jesus is getting at? Do you see this woman, Simon? Do you understand who she is? Do you just see her as a sinner? You don't see her the way that I see her. I, I see her in a different light than what you do. You simply see her sin. But I see her as a humble worshiper, as a woman who should be held up as an example of faith and and devotion. That's how I see this woman. How do you see her, Simon? How do we see this woman? But Jesus then reveals that, that, that the love that this woman had for Jesus far exceeded the love and the respect that Simon had for Jesus. And Jesus begins to expose there in front of all these guests how... Simon had neglected to show Jesus all the common courtesies of the day. There's certain things that you do that are hospitable, right? When someone comes to your door, you open the door for them. You stand there and you say, welcome, come into my house. Very often, at least in, in our, my culture, we say, would you like something to drink? Can I make you some coffee? Would you like some tea? Here's a, a chair for you to sit in. Can you imagine if you invited someone to your house and you did absolutely none of those things? They knocked on the door for a while, and eventually they opened up, and they said, Is anyone in here? Oh, yeah, come on in. And and you don't say anything to them. You just continue about your daily business. It's, in a sense, that's what Simon does here. There are things that were supposed to be done, and he does none of them. And Jesus takes the opportunity, knowing Simon's thoughts, and knowing his thoughts towards this woman, he takes the opportunity to point out all of Simon's lack of hospitality, and how sinful and how this this woman who he sees as sinful actually has made up for all of his lack of hospitality. This woman has done what Simon was supposed to do, but didn't do. Isn't that interesting? Look at this. He says, I entered your house, verse 44. You gave me no water for my feet. It was customary if someone came in that they were to have, they were, either the person washed their guest's feet or something was arranged where someone came and washed their feet they had sandals on in these dusty streets and that was just something that that needed to happen and that everyone did he says you were supposed to wash my feet and you gave me no water for my feet but this woman this woman has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair she did what you didn't do Simon. verse 45 you gave me no kiss that'd be a customary greeting in that day we see this in other cultures, a kiss on both sides of the cheek or something like that. It's a greeting. It's opening the door. Hello. Simon didn't do that for Jesus. You gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time as she has come in, not has just given me a greeting, but has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This is something that was just something to, to refresh, almost like splashing water on your face. It was to, to take maybe the smells of the street off of you. Uh, some oil to put on On the guest's head. And Simon doesn't do that. But she, he says, she has anointed my feet with ointment. With this perfume. She's done everything that you didn't do. And so then Jesus draws a conclusion from these actions. With the parable of the debtors as the backdrop. He says, therefore, I tell you, Simon. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now we have to ask a question at this point: Is Jesus saying that this woman's actions have earned for her forgiveness of sins that he pronounces? Doesn't it, if you read it? Therefore, I tell you, her sins—she has done all these things. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So, is the point she loved much? She did all these things that you didn't do, Simon. Therefore, her sins are forgiven. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. I don't think that's what he's saying. Let me give you three reasons from the text here that I think that's not what he is saying. The first would be the end of verse 47. So read the whole thing. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So what's the point there? He's saying that love flows from forgiveness. That's that's the corresponding phrase. He who is forgiven little, loves little. So the amount of love that flows from someone who is forgiven little is little. But this woman has loved much, and therefore I know that she has been forgiven of much. So the amount that you are forgiven is what translates into how much you love. I think second is his pronouncement in verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. I take this less as right now your sins are forgiven and more as an assurance Having come into this hostile crowd, Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. This, what you came in here to express thanks for is true. I think there's, this prior contact here. And the third reason is verse, verse 50 there. It, it says, um, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Just bringing that aspect in that it's not what she has done that saved her, is it? What does Jesus say? It's your faith that is saved. It's your belief that is saved. And again, I think that's why as we look at this story, that, that we have to say this woman knew Jesus prior to walking into Simon's courtyard, that she walks in as a woman who is full of faith in Jesus, who has been forgiven of her sins, and now she's come on a mission. She's come with this alabaster flask ready to come and to, to pour out her thanks to Christ, to pour out her worship, to Christ, to anoint him with this oil, and to express her thanks to her Savior, to express her love and her devotion and her worship to him. Salvation, by any other means than faith, short-circuits true worship and love. If our salvation is by anything else besides faith, it, it makes our love and our worship twisted. Love and devotion and and good works and worship and gratitude, they they flow from someone who has come to know the forgiveness of God. If we see them as the means of salvation, then what are they? They're they're self-serving, they're self-focused, they're self-glorifying, they're self-centered. They're not glorifying to God, they we're looking for something. Maybe you've had this. Someone is nice to you, really nice to you, a lot nicer than they normally are. And you start to think, I wonder what they want. (laughs) <laughs> often with kids you see this in like a sitcom. Someone gets real sweet and syrupy and they start to say, okay, what do you want? If salvation is by works, isn't that what this woman is doing? Is this true worship? No, it would be self-serving. It would be something that flows out of, i got to get something, and so I'm going to do all the things I can. But if it's purely of faith, if it's purely of grace, then when she comes and she offers this sacrifice of praise, you might say, it is it is purely for the glory of Christ. It has nothing to do with her. It's all out of thanksgiving. So Jesus in this parable, it's amazing. He does, he performs again the divine reversal that Luke's often talking about. That, that the person that we expect to be exalted is humbled, and the person that is humbled by society and despised by society is exalted by Jesus. Simon, the one who is who is high in society, is brought low by a stinging rebuke. And this woman of the city who everyone knew was a sinner, that's what she was known for, is exalted as this example of faith and devotion and worship. What does she do for us here? She models what our our regard for Christ, our worship for Christ, our love for Christ should look like. She teaches us. This sinful woman has something to teach us. She shows us what worship looks like. Think about these things. Just a couple things to draw from this. We offer to Jesus humble love and worship. Humble. There's a humility to what she's doing here. I mean, think about this. She comes to a place where everyone hates her. She comes and she's she is crying. I mean, they're not just little tears. I mean, she is weeping. There's nothing more embarrassing than weeping. I stand up here sometimes and break down and, Man, it's hard, it's it's humbling. She worships Christ. It's it's this humble worship. She's kissing his feet. Humble. We offer to Jesus sacrificial love and worship. This cost her something. I think back to David when, when he was going to offer a sacrifice for the people and the, the he was going the, the owner of the land where he was going to offer the sacrifice was going to give it to him, but he said, No, I will pay for it. It says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. This was costly to this woman. This alabaster perfume would not have been cheap. It was a prized possession. She takes it and she pours it out for Christ. It's something that is sacrificial. And the other word that I put on it is, it's unconstrained. Unconstrained love and worship. She's not holding back at all. She's not worried about what anyone else is thinking in this moment. She just knows that her heart is overflowing in worship. She's weeping. She's crying. She's forgotten everyone else. I think there's a place for that. I'll say I think we need to be careful sometimes in corporate worship. We don't want to be a distraction. And yet at the same time, there needs to be a a sense where as Christ moves in us as we are overflowing with worship and devotion to Him, that we should not really worry necessarily about what other people might think as we worship Him. Should, and I think that ties in with that humility. Now, how do we worship Christ? It's not just in, in in singing songs and in worship, but it's within a lifestyle. That there's a, that our lives are marked by by humility, by an understanding of who we are, an understanding of who Christ is, by sacrifice, that that we don't just give God out of our surplus, but we give Him something that costs us something, whether it is our money or or our time or our resources or our emotional energy, whatever it might be that we're willing to sacrifice so that it's unconstrained. This woman teaches us what it looks like to really worship. How did she get here? How did this sinful woman come to a place of being able to teach Simon, the Pharisee, and us what true worship and devotion looks like? I think it's this, because she knew who she was, and she knew who Jesus was. It's very simple. And in that knowledge, she surpassed Simon. She knew who she was. She knew who Jesus was. I think that's repentance of faith, isn't it? We know who we are. Turn. We know who Jesus is. We believe. Jesus says to Simon, uh, what he's, he's rebuking Simon here, what he's saying is, Simon... You are, are so concerned. You're so concern, concerned with the thought that I don't know who this woman is. The real issue is you don't know who you are. You're so concerned about her sin that you've neglected to see your own sin. You're so concerned about her, in fact, that you have neglected to see who I am. You, you have shown me no love. You've shown me no respect. You've shown me no gratitude. Because you don't see who you are, you don't see your need for forgiveness, and you don't see who I am that I have come to bring forgiveness. You show no humility in my presence. This woman knows who I am, and she knows who she is, and she has responded rightly. And Simon, you have no idea who you are, you have no idea who I am, and that's why you have something to learn from her. I don't think the point of the parable here, this parable about the, the people who own money, I don't think the point is that there are people in the world who are 500 denarii sinners, and there are people in the world who are 50 denarii sinners. Some people need to be forgiven more than others. And so the people that are forgiven more, therefore, are able to love Jesus more. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because then wouldn't we say, well, we all need to take like 30 years of our lives and live a terrible life so that then we can truly understand the forgiveness of Christ. No. The point is that that it's it's perception. The point is, do we see that we are... This is what James says. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but offends in one point is what? It's guilty of all. So the point isn't the amount of sin. The point is guilt before God. The point is you are a law breaker. period. You are a rebel against God, period. There aren't, in fact, 50 denarii sinners and 500 denarii sinners. We are all 500 denarii sinners. We are all 5 million denarii sinners. That's who every one of us is, and Simon's perception of himself is that he's, well, I might be 50. I think Jesus is is maybe insulting him at calling him a 50 denarii sinner. I think maybe he thought he was a 5 denarii sinner. His perception is who he is 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 much better than who this woman is. He exalts himself above this woman, and so he doesn't respond to Jesus in love and worship. Think about Simon this way. Imagine we're all on a desert island stranded, and Simon is there with us, and the rescue boat comes, and we're all excited to be rescued. Simon's at the front of the line, and he gets a hold of the captain. He says, Captain, I just want you to know, I'm not as lost as the rest of these people. That He's lost his mind. He doesn't see reality. I think that's what's going on. Jesus is trying to bring reality into Simon's life. Simon, you are just as sinful as this one you are in need of as much forgiveness as she is. And until you see that, you will not love much. Until you understand who you are, in fact, you will not be forgiven of your sins. I think when it says, he who is forgiven little, loves little, I don't think it's saying that Simon, in fact, is forgiven of anything. I don't think he's seen his sin. I don't think he's come to Christ in repentance at all. I think he's coming to Jesus with what he has to offer. And therefore, I don't think he knows Christ in this moment. He doesn't know who he is. But he also doesn't know who Jesus is. You see that in, in verse 48. I'm sorry, verse um, 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? He has no idea. And no, they, they have no idea who Jesus is. But you notice that phrase, who is this who even forgives sins? Does it remind you of any other stories? It reminds me of the healing of the paralytic. Do you remember that? When Jesus says to that man, when he's lowered down through the roof, what's the first thing he says? Does he say, rise up and walk? No. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And what was the conclusion we made? Jesus then heals the man to say, so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. The man rises up and walks. Therefore, Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. Therefore, I am God. So who is he? He is God. That's what he's saying here. I can forgive sins. And you all don't believe it. You don't believe who I am. You don't understand who I am. But this woman knows who I am. You don't know who you are, and you don't know who I am. And therefore, you love little. I think those are two questions for us just to ponder. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are apart from Christ? Do you know who you are without the salvation that God has brought to you? Or maybe you have not received that gift of salvation. Do you know who you are without salvation? Are there people in society that if they came in the back door of this room that you would look at them the way that Simon looked at this woman? And you exalt yourself and you say, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. The reality is that's who we all are. We are all this woman. We are all the man who owed 500 denarii. Apart from Christ, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who we are. And if we don't see that, we will not love much. Do you know who you are? And Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? Do, you, do we recognize what he has done? Is, do, do we... Have you ever worshipped Jesus in this way? The way that this woman does? Humbly. Unconditionally. I, I, just not even thinking about anyone that's around her. Sacrificially. Giving up. What was, what was most dear to herself? This is the overflow of a heart that truly sees who Jesus is. That sees Him as God. It, it overflows in deep worship like this. Our love for Jesus is directly proportional to our understanding of who He is and how much we have been forgiven. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Who are you? Do you know who you are? And for every look at yourself, I've heard it said, for every look at your sin and who you are, take ten looks at the cross and look and see what Jesus has done and to worship him. Yes, we need to see our sin. But does does Jesus dwell on this woman's sin? No, he recognizes it. Isn't that interesting? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, I mean, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, yeah, she is a big sinner. But her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And does he bring them up ever again? No, two more times he says, your sins are forgiven. Later on, your faith has saved you. Jesus does not pour more shame. Yeah, you, man, just think about how bad you were. No, she knows it. And now he says, your sins are forgiven. That's what Christ says to us. If we see our sin, then we come to the cross. The cross reveals who we are, doesn't it? The cross reveals the cost of our sin. We see Jesus in the garden. We see Jesus on the on the road. We see Jesus in, in the trials. We see Jesus deserted by the disciples. We see him hanging on the cross, mocked. That's what our sin cost Christ. That is the depth of our sin. That is who we are. That is what we deserve. But we also see the love of Jesus, don't we? That that was what he was willing to go through to bring us our salvation. If we see the cross clearly... We will see who we are, and we will see who Jesus is, and our response will be to love much. It will be to love Jesus much, to offer this, this kind of humble, sacrificial, unconstrained worship and devotion and love. But the overflow of that will then be that when the sinful woman walks into the church, when the sinful woman comes Knocking on your door when the sinful woman is in our neighborhood. That our response is not the response of Simon. Our response is not to recoil. Our response is not to say, wow, what a huge sinner. Our response is to love much. If we recognize that we are the chief of sinners, if we recognize that we are the worst of sinners, and if Jesus has shown grace and mercy to us, then we will love him much. But we will also love those in need of his love much. We will extend grace to those who are sinners. We will be filled with mercy as Jesus is filled with mercy. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Do you know who you are? Do you know who Jesus is?